Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Luke chapter 7, verse 11, you'll find that on page 863 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I'm delighted to be with you here this morning, um, especially in light of this passage in which we could study. It is uh, certainly one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's my great privilege to consider it with you this morning. So Luke chapter 7, verse 11, hear now the Word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful not only for your word, but the work of Christ. Let your spirit begin to work it in our heart that he displays in this wonderful passage. We, we thank you for this opportunity, Father. We're, I hope, excited to hear from you, to consider your word. Let your spirit begin to work it in our hearts that we might know you more truly and follow you more faithfully and love you more fully. So we ask you today, through your word, the power of the Spirit who indwells our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The 19th century theologian Robert Dabney was away on business when his son became ill. He had an anxious night of travel to get home and wrote of the subsequent events in a letter to his brother saying, We used prompt measures and sent early for the doctor, who did not think his case was dangerous. But he grew gradually worse until Sunday, when his symptoms became alarming, and he passed away after great sufferings on Monday. A half hour before he died, he sank into a sleep which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we have had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I have learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give up my darling, but that I saw him suffer such pangs, then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I was impotent for his help. Ah, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasure and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great distress. To see my dear little one ravaged, crushed, and destroyed, 
turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help after his gentle voice could no longer be heard and to feel myself helpless to give any aid. This tears my heart with anguish. The death of a child is undoubtedly one of the greatest anguishes one can feel in this life. It's an anguish that Joseph Bailey is well familiar with, who has lost not one or two, but three sons. The first at 18 days old after a failed surgery, the second five years old from leukemia, and the third at 18 years old following a sledding accident. He writes, in a way that is different from any other human relationship, a, bo- a child is bone of his parents' bone, flesh of their flesh. When a child dies, part of the parent is buried as well. I'm aware that some of you know this pain. Others of you fear it. And if it's not fearing the death of a child, perhaps it's fearing the rebellion of a child. Or perhaps it's fearing family conflict or anxiety over money or an uncertain future or the troubles in health. Jesus Christ said, in this world you will have trouble. And others have counseled in light of this, preached to the suffering, and you will never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew. In light of this truth, this passage is so incredibly powerful and reassuring as we see how our Lord in great compassion and power confronts the trouble that sin brings upon us. And I invite you this morning, the great privilege to gaze upon our Lord and and see how he is moved by suffering and how he acts in great might to alleviate it. We see here not only the work of Jesus, but we also see the response that people should have to it. A response of worship and of witness. As we see, Jesus comes and meets the suffering. He does initially by seeing our need. I invite you to consider, first of all, that Jesus sees our needs. Notice verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Notice as Luke sets the scene for us, it is soon afterwards that Jesus heals uh, the centurion servant that he travels to this town called Nain. He's not traveling alone, nor is he just bringing along his 12 apostles. But Luke tells us here in verse 11 that a great crowd went with him. Hundreds, maybe thousands, wandering these uh, rugged roads as Jesus travels to this far away town. I trust there's great excitement amongst these individuals. Jesus just finished his sermon, just demonstrate great power in healing a servant who he did not know or see or speak to. And yet I, I, I trust, therefore, that there was liveliness in this crowd, bright faces and anticipation and hope as to what will Jesus do next? And he rides at sundown after a long day's journey. uh, Another crowd emerges from this town. Luke says in verse 12, a considerable crowd. Yet this crowd is incredibly different from the one following Jesus. There is no joy with them or anticipation. There's just grief and hopelessness. For Jesus has happened upon a funeral. In fact, he would have heard them before he saw them. The mournful cries 
the, the uh, sober wails, the dirges being played with flutes and cymbals would have announced the grief before Jesus laid eyes upon it. But when he did, the sight was equally pitiful for he saw this mass of mourners with their torn garments and their tear-streaked faces as they leave the city to bury their dead. Near the front of this procession will be the dead young man. Jesus will call him a young man, perhaps leading us to believe that he was a teenager, maybe in his early 20s. He's being carried on a funeral bier, which would be a plank of wood, where they would lay the, uh, the shrouded body on this wood, his eyes closed for all to see. He would be carried on the shoulders of his friends. And leading this lifeless body in their funeral garb would be the deceased family as they support each other on the journey to the grave. And yet on this occasion, you note that there was only one who walked ahead of the coffin, ahead of the body. It was the young man's mother. What a sight that must have been for Jesus to behold, that this woman who had no longer a husband and no other children to lean upon. See, Luke explains this weeping woman is a widow. In fact, she's done this before, hasn't she? She's walked to the graveyard. She's buried her husband. And now she's doing so again as she buries her son. The pale corpse is her, not one of many sons, but Luke explains her only son. And so she would walk, leading this body with a large crowd behind her. I think the crowd perhaps contrasts her actual state, that she is certainly alone in this world. I want you to understand as we consider these truths that this is a true story. This is a woman who once had a, a wonderful life. She had a man whom she loved and married and, and God blessed her and gave her a son. And, and now she has, she's lost it all. Tomorrow she will awake all alone. And the presence of her son will be but a memory to her. And as awful as this is, a grief that perhaps you and I can't even appreciate, this is not just a story of grief, but it's a story of tragedy. You see, in the day in which this woman lived, a, a woman without children or a husband will be without protection or provision. There would be no way for her to make uh, income for herself, and she would be therefore forced to live on charity, perhaps becoming a beggar. And so I think Luke wants us to not only appreciate her grief, but also the fear that she must have as to what the future will bring her. You see, her need, her need is clearly great. I want you to understand that, that as we consider that great need, that this need is brought upon her, just as all other misery, all other need, is brought upon her by sin. God has given life. God has made all things good. And you and I and humanity at our side has chosen rebellion. We have chosen sin. We have chosen lawlessness. And in doing so, death quickly followed. Paul writes in Romans 5, As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the Bible is constantly linking sin and death together. And not just death, sickness and pain, labor and trouble, sorrow and poverty. It all abounds from one end of this world to the other end. From where does it all come? Sin. Sin is the fountain from which all sorrows flow. Sin is the root from which all troubles bud. If there was no sin, neither would there be tears, nor sickness, nor death. 
Please understand that the world in which you live in is not the world that God has made. It is the world that we have made. The world that we have chosen with all of the trouble in it. And so when we see these needs, when we see this misery, let us lay blame at the right door. Let us blame sin. Therefore, my friends, let us hate it. Stop playing with sin. Stop excusing it. Stop feeding it. Stop dabbling with it. Stop saying, I'll repent tomorrow. It only brings misery. It only brings hardship and trouble. We ought to make war upon it whenever it emerges its ugly head from within our hearts. It brings sorrow upon us, just as it brought sorrow upon this woman. And this tidal wave of sorrow had come crashing upon her. And it's at this time, this time when this weeping widow felt herself sinking down as she stumbles to the graveyard, comes something totally unexpected and utterly beyond belief. This pathetic woman, who I think in many ways is a symbol of all of our great need, stands directly in the path of Jesus Christ. As we see the way of death meets the way of life. And when Christ encounters this scene, he not only recognizes it, he is moved by it. As we consider, secondly, Jesus is moved by compassion. He's moved with compassion. In verse 13, the Bible tells us, and the crowd from the town, uh, excuse me, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. You notice a couple things here, what Jesus is doing. First of all, he sees her. He recognizes the great need, Luke tells us. And immediately he responds by feeling towards her. He has compassion on her. Jesus is often shown as having compassion upon those in great need. Perhaps the the greatest story or the evidence of Jesus' compassion is the story of the death of Lazarus as he encounters Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, at the graveside weeping. And John 11 says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That phrase to describe what's going on in Jesus is sometimes used to describe a horse's snort. In other words, it almost seems that Jesus, if I could put it this way, let out an involuntary gasp in response to their deep sorrow. He felt so much sympathy for, towards these sisters. The, the breath just went out of him. In fact, these feelings that would rise up in the heart of our Lord would cause him to shed his own tears, as John will tell us Jesus wept. The Lord of the universe, weeping in compassion for those who are in need. You see, not only saw her need, he feels her need. Not only understood her need, he's moved by it in his heart. And I tell you, friends, he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so does Jesus see your need? Yes. Does Jesus understand your need? Yes. But don't stop there. Jesus is moved by your need. He feels your need. I, I wonder if is there not comfort here for you in verse 13 when you understand that in your darkest days you have one that, to whom you can turn that is moved with compassion. He remembers our losses. He knows our sufferings. He hears our cries. And when he does... His heart goes out to us. In every despair, God is there. He feels. He understands. 
he could help. In fact, I want you to see that it's more than just this care for her. I mean, um, it, it seems to me that he's seeking out the sorrowful. Now, I, I'm just going to... Um, this is, I think, implied in the text, but it's not explicit in the text. So we're just going to pause the authoritative biblical preaching for some, some sanctified imagination for a moment, okay? Just let, indulge me for a moment. But I find something very interesting going on in this text in light of where this town where he is. He's, you see that verse 11? He's in the town called Nain. Now, Nain is still there. You go there tomorrow if you like. It's 20 miles from Capernaum. Um, and, and here comes Jesus, and he's arriving just at, at dusk in time for this funeral procession. The funerals would always be at sundown, the day of the death. Now, we're not sure why Jesus is in Nain. Nain is never mentioned in the Bible other than in Luke chapter 7. But what we do know that in Nain, there is a woman with great need, and here comes Jesus, right? And and arriving just in time. And you think about this great crowd that's with Jesus. You know, he has a great crowd, hundreds of people perhaps, maybe thousands with him. And he is walking 20 miles from Capernaum. Verse 11, soon afterwards it says, other translations say the next day. And so from Capernaum, he goes from Capernaum to Nain, 20 miles walk in, in the next day with a great crowd following him, a 20-mile journey by foot. And undoubtedly they're, they're trying to, I think, getting him to stop and, or teach or preach. or uh, He's, in fact, passing town after town and not stopping. In fact, I traced it on the map. He passes the town of Gennesaret, Trecaria, Arbella, Magdala, Tiberias, Dabarita, Tabor, and Nazareth. Just goes past them one after another. Not stopping here and not stopping here and not stopping here because he's going to Nain. For some reason, the spirit in him wants him there by sundown. And lo and behold, he meets outside the city this woman in great need. And his heart goes out to her. And not only his, his heart, but he moves to soothe her. You see that there in verse 13? He says, do not cry. Don't weep. No, don't, he's not saying, as sometimes Christians may, you know, we've got to be strong here. You know, keep your chin up. Things will turn out okay. That's not what he's doing at all. She's at a funeral. She's supposed to cry. That's why God has given us tear ducts, right? To cry at times like this. But what he's saying to her is, don't cry. Jesus is here. I've come. Look to me. And those words, do not cry, are a prelude to the power in which he is going to exercise as we thirdly consider Jesus possesses great power. Note verse 14. Then he came up and he touched the beer. And the bearers stood still. And so Jesus immediately moves to justify the comfort. He just spoke into this woman's heart as he leaves her side and approaches the plank. And he reaches out and he touches it. Now this is not an act of healing. He's simply stopping the procession to the grave. As Luke tells us, as soon as he touched it, which by the way would make him ritually unclean. As soon as he touched it, the bearers stood still. Everything stopped. And, and I don't know if you see the picture that is leaping off the pages of scripture where Jesus is halting the procession of the dead. He is stopping the journey to the grave. It's almost as if he is like, is, as if he is saying to the deceased, where do you think you're going? I am here. When death meets Jesus, it stops. It stops in its track. Everyone else follows death. We all follow that procession to the grave. Yet Jesus brings it to a halt. He puts his hand up and as if he were saying, death, you shall come no farther. 
Is that not a cameo of his entire ministry? Is that not what he has come to do? To, to halt this endless procession to the grave, one after another, billions upon billions of people, and his silent touch stops everything. Leaving, I trust, a, a riveting silence. I imagine that the musicians halt mid-song. The wailing cries are stifled as this man breaks every um, cultural norm by reaching out and touching the unclean. Well, that silence is broken with a simple command, as we see in verse 14. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. We know that there's power in Jesus' words. Remember last week, we considered the healing of the centurion's servant. And the centurion said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. We, we know Jesus' words have power, but what can he do here? It's too late, isn't it? He's dead. We've seen in Luke's gospel his power over demons, his power over disease, and even last week his power over distance. But death? And to everyone I trust, what a cruel remark that must have been, young man, arise. Cruel unless he has the power to bring it to pass, and he does. For the dead boy, or we should probably say the formerly dead boy, sat up and spoke, as verse 15 instructs. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Just say the word, and the dead will rise. And as Josh has already alluded to us in in the scripture reading, there is a, a powerful picture here of what God has done in all of our hearts. And the Bible says that you and I, all of us, were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born in a state of spiritual deadness. And Jesus has come on this world and He can raise the dead. He could raise the spiritually dead. That Jesus is the only way in which you and I can have life. Our only hope is Christ. That He might come and work in our life and bring life into us. He has come to give life. He come that we might have life and have it abundantly. This is what Christ has come to do. To give us new life. Even eternal life. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. We're thankful that you have come and uh, we praise the Lord that you can be here with us today. And you may think, uh, well, well, Pastor, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I, I don't feel dead. Uh, you say I'm spiritually dead. I, I feel pretty much alive. Things are going well. Uh, I have family, I have a job, I have health, I, I have all I need. I, I'm a pretty happy guy. I don't know what this idea of spiritually dead means, but I'm not sure it applies to me. And I understand many people live with that understanding. I would suggest to you that perhaps our greatest needs are sometimes needs we do not feel. That we feel our surface needs, but the deep needs in our heart are sometimes elusive to us. And it just may be that God, out of His tender love for you, may one day, perhaps even this afternoon, cause you to feel your need. He, as some have said, may cause you to have a limp that you may learn to lean upon Him. God will cause us to know our deadness in order that He might grant us life. I pray that He might even find you and give you life today. 
that he, through his son, by you trusting in him and repenting of your sin, may know the life that Jesus offers you. For us Christians, has he not already done this in our lives? The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, as our brother alluded to, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. He has made you alive. You've heard this command, haven't you? Have you not heard him call out to you when you were dead in your sins? Arise! Come alive! I give you new life. This is what Christ means when he talks about being born again or being regenerated. Just as he spoke life into this dead man, so he has done for us. He gives us new life. He he gives us a new heart. He makes us a new person. He gives us the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He he gives us a a relationship with God, his Father, who becomes our Father. He he gives us all sorts of new relationships. In fact, you notice the, the renewed relationship in which he gives in this story. If we read on in verse 15. And the Bible tells us, and, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And note this, and Jesus gave him to his mother. <laughs> what a reunion that must have been. Can you imagine what that would have been like as Jesus perhaps reaches up and lifts this young man off the plane. And he escorts him to his grieving mother. Could you imagine what what she must have been thinking. Can you, can you see her face as she reached out and embraced her son? Can you feel that jubilation in her heart? I mean, how long must she embraced him? How, how hard must she have held him? And maybe you could ga- gaze your eyes upon Jesus standing nearby with a great joy on his face. What a scene that must have been. In fact, Kent Hughes helps us imagine it saying, the gray, cold clay of his face flushed with color his fixed, dilated eyes twitched and focused on the blue sky. He blinked. He sat up in his shroud and began to talk. Perhaps his words were mundane. Mother, you sure look tired. Or I'm hungry. Or who are all these people? At any rate, the crowd fell back and some began to shriek. There was a universal rush of adrenaline, he writes. Here and there, incredulous voices began to praise God. And his mother? There were still tears. But her wet eyes radiated heavenly light and overwhelming joy as she braced her son. Her only son. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. As Christ acts in great power. But even as we consider the great power that Jesus acts here, I want you to notice what's missing in the story. This is what I find particularly compelling. What's absent here? And what's absent is a request for help. You know, this woman did not ask for Jesus to do this. She, she did not come to Jesus and say, my son has died, will you please heal him? She didn't express like the centurion this incredible and this marveling faith. There's no request at all. He, he just comes to her. In fact, he, I think, goes out of his way to get to her. So understand, when you're in need, Jesus doesn't begrudgingly come to us. Okay, again, I have to come and help you once more. He is moved in his heart to do so and delights to express his power in our lives. He comes to us sometimes even before we ask him. Some of you know what that's like, don't you? 
That's the story of my life. I, I, I wasn't even remotely looking for God. I, God was the farthest thing on my mind. And one day he showed up in Huntington Beach, California to, to a, 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 well, a bad kid, okay? And he said to me, he said, I've come for you. I've come for you. He spoke to me through his word. I wasn't even imagining who God was or where he would be. And out of the blue, he says, I'm here for you. And he spoke into my heart, Stephen Carn, arise. Believe. And he put faith in my heart that I might know him. He comes to those who don't even ask him. So much is the grace and the love and the power and the compassion of this God whom we worship. His comfort comes to those who do not even seek him. He comes to those who are not even aware of Him. That's what He came on the earth to do, didn't He? To look for sorrow, to find the hurting. That's what He continues to do today. See, there's no request. But I also want you to notice something else that's missing. Uh, Difficulty. What I mean by that, (laughs) this doesn't seem very hard for Jesus to do. There's no difficulty at all. Now, Josh read for us this morning, a thousand years prior, the prophet Elijah raised a widow's only son from the dead. And not only that, First Kings 17 tells us, when he did, he gave him back to his mother. And now the people who are following Jesus clearly recognize the parallels between what Jesus is doing and what the prophet of old had done. As you see in verse 16, they say, a great prophet has risen among us. Okay, so they are drawing the connection. But I want you to see that Jesus is acting more than a healer. He's acting as the creator. He's acting as the life giver, as the redeemer. Elijah laid on top of the corpse three times, shouting to heaven for help. Three times begging God in heaven, please raise this boy, let life come back in him. Jesus is not begging. Jesus is not even praying. He is commanding. He is demanding. He simply speaks and life returns. He wills the dead to rise and they obey. So yes, Jesus is a great prophet. No doubt about it. He has come to bring us God's revelation. But let us not stop there. He is more than a prophet. He is the resurrection and the life. He would stand one day after he conquered the empty tomb and declared, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He has authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He has power beyond which no one has even approached. He is God himself. He is the creator And so when we think about this, when we consider that Jesus, when he sees our needs, he is moved in his heart with compassion and he is moved to express that compassion with great power. He is both powerful and compassionate. He is compassionately powerful, powerfully compassionate. So he's not walking around this earth as a tourist. He's not thinking, well, I just want to experience this up firsthand. I want to see what I made. He comes to change the world. God the Father is not content to leave the world the way it is, the way it was. And he came to this world where sin and death reign in order to change it. And he intends to renew it. And he will come again and he will fix this world and he will wipe away all of its sorrows. And he's giving us but a glimpse here in Luke 7. Of course, he wants to start this work already, doesn't he? He wants to 
started in your life and in my life. He's not simply interested in empathizing with us or having compassion for our troubles, though he does that. He wants to change us. He wants to help us. And he will work powerfully in your life. Now, please understand his power is always mediated by his wisdom. And what you request, he may not give. But I can testify, as I'm sure scores of you can, that the times of greatest victories and growth in my life have been in the times of sorrow. And times God will bring us through those times of sorrow. And he will not come and take them away because he is doing something greater than we can even imagine. And he calls for us to trust him. Trust him. that not, not, not that he'll do everything we want, but that he will do what's best for us and what brings him the greatest glory, which is best for us. And when he acts this way, we recognize what we already know to be true, that Jesus deserves our praise. As we consider fourthly, that Jesus deserves our praise. And not only that, but our proclamation. Can you imagine what you would have done if you were there walking, watching this funeral procession? Well, the Bible tells us in great detail what those did as they beheld the work of Christ. Verse 16, we see that they praised God. They praised Him. Fear seized them all, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited His people. You notice they were afraid. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were scared. But He also tells us not only did this fear seize them, they glorified God. They, they begin to declare God has come and He's visiting us. He's, for some reason, we think ancient people are gullible, like more gullible than you and I are. And we, we kind of think, oh yeah, well you raise them from the dead, of course. That happens all the time. No, they were terrified of this. Just as you would be if you were at a funeral and you're walking to the graveside and the, the coffin burst open and out came the deceased. You would be gripped with fear as well. They certainly did as they were full of afraid and yet full of praise. But their praise doesn't terminate then. Their reaction doesn't terminate in their praise. You notice verse 17, and we see this all the time. When people praise God, it always moves to the proclamation of God. When people worship God, there is always a witness to God that follows. Verse 17 explains, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. They couldn't help but talk about this. And I wonder if this is the purpose for bringing the crowd with him, this sizable crowd, that this would not be some secretive act, that this would be a rather a publicly validated act of God. Then the people would go around and declare throughout all Judea, four days' journey to the south and the whole country what Jesus had done. You see, what Luke is recording for us is, is this eyewitness account. He's telling us what actually took place. In fact, I'm glad they called him a prophet. I'm glad it doesn't look like they figured it all out. They didn't say, well, he must be the divine son of God who's taken on human flesh to die for uh, sins of mankind and three days will be raised from the grave. They didn't understand any of that. And they understand God was there, that God was visiting them, and all they could understand, the only context they had was it's a prophet. And Luke is explaining to us what they actually believed. In fact, I don't know if you notice this, this interesting phrase. When Jesus heals the man, Luke tells us he sat up, and then he says he spoke. Why, why mention that he spoke? I mean, it clearly adds no theological significance to this story. In fact, it leads me to wonder, what, what on earth does he say? Right? And to my great frustration, Luke doesn't tell us. Um, 
I don't, I don't know if he said, thank you, Jesus, or hi, mom, or, or what he must have said. But we do know that Luke interviewed witnesses to write his gospel. Perhaps he talked to one of these individuals who saw this, or two, or three. Maybe he even talked to the man who was raised from the dead. And certainly this impacted people, and it was a memorable event. You know why I think they, Luke tells us this strange detail that he spoke? Because it happened. That's how it happened. And he is giving us this historical account that, that these people saw what took place. In fact, Jesus will raise two more people from the dead. One man he'll raise four days after he died from the dead and cause such a national stir that the religious leaders decided this is it. We must kill him. In fact, there was an ancient Christian, a man named Quadratus, who was alive in the first century, just decades after our Lord Jesus ascended to heaven. And he wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome, Hadrian. We still have copies of this letter. This is what he said. The persons who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were also present afterwards. And not merely during the time that the Savior walked upon the earth, but after his departure also, they were still there for a considerable time so that some of them lived even until our time. This man is, is testifying that these people were alive and they walked around, that, that Jesus has done this great work, and they all saw it and they testified to it all over the nation. They saw what Jesus did, they understand why he did it, and they were moved to both praise him and to proclaim him, to worship him and to witness to him. And so I wonder about you, my Christian brothers and sisters. Are you moved to praise him? Are you moved to proclaim Him? You know, sometimes people tell me that they don't share their faith because they, they don't know how. And certainly training will help. In fact, uh, during the Sunday school hour in a, in a month or two, we're going to start an evangelism training course that will hopefully equip us. But I wonder if the ultimate reason we don't talk to others about Jesus is not because we don't know how but because we're not in love with him like we should be. No one trained me to talk about my children. Right? It comes, I just do it because they're awesome. Right? No, no one, I never went to class to, to brag about my sports teams. Right? That comes very easy to me. We talk about what we love. We talk about what has captured our hearts. So I wonder if Christ would capture our hearts more fully and completely that the praise that is due His name and the witness that we ought to bring to Him would, would not, we wouldn't have to try to dig down and find it. It would just explode out of our hearts. They weren't trying to witness. They weren't thinking, okay, how can we tell about these things? They just spread out and did it because they were seized by His greatness. May God seize us. May God cause our love to grow for Him that we might worship Him and praise Him properly. In fact, one way that our love can grow is to be reminded, as this story does, that this day that we see here, a, a very similar day is coming for you and I, that one day we shall hear His cry. One day the voice that raised this boy from the dead will trumpet throughout all the world, calling His sheep to Himself. Those who have died. One day the world will hear the Lord Jesus say, Get up, Ruth. Get up, Ott. Get up, Mabel. 
Get up, Jimmy. And one day we too who are in Christ shall be raised with Him. One day death will be no more. One day He will say to us, do not cry as He wipes away every tear. For He Himself promised in John 5, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. That day's coming. May our hearts be moved by it that we may persevere in this life. When I was thinking about this text and this story, I, I'm, in fact, every time I come to it and others like it, I'm always, I can't help but to think about perhaps the hardest time in my pastoral ministry a number of years ago uh, when little six-year-old Emily was diagnosed with cancer. And I, I don't think I've ever prayed for anything, at least a healing, harder than I prayed for Emily. I mean, daily, over on my knees, begging God to heal her. And I, I remember, like yesterday, when the church leadership gathered around the sick little girl with her head, bald head misshapen by the tumors that were growing in her head. And we just laid our hands upon her, as the Bible instructs us, beseeched heaven. God, will you not heal her? Show this county your power. But he did. She died. And when she died, she, she left lingering questions. I mean, why didn't he heal her? Why, why such a painful death? Why so young? Why did it have to take so long? And, and these are questions I still don't know the answer to. But there's one question I do know the answer to. Is that little Emily is not dead. That she called out to Christ to forgive her sins, and she is alive today with God. That is our hope. You understand that? That should move us in our heart. The hope of every believer, though we too will die. That, that, that we will live forever through Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And He will bring us through death into life forevermore where we shall be with Him, and we shall be reunited with, with all those whom we have lost, whom we desperately love. I think I love how Jesus brings this man to this woman, just out of grace. He wants to reunite the son with the mother, and He will do so in heaven, will He not? And, and Jesus will not only bring us to Himself, he, He'll give us back to each other. I wonder, who are you waiting to meet in glory? Who will Christ bring you to? Robert Dabney looked forward to that day when he would see his son again. He knew that hope. He wrote, Our parting is not long. The spoiled, ruined body will be raised and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. Our little boy, we hope and trust, is now a ransomed spirit. This is a hope inexpressible and full of glory. And as I stand by the little grave and think of the poor ruined clay within that was a few days ago so beautiful, my heart bleeds. But I ask, where is the soul whose beams gave that clay all its beauty and preciousness? And I triumph. Has it not already begun with an infant voice the praises of my Savior? He is in Christ's heavenly house and under his guardian love. 
Now I feel, as never before, the blessedness of the redeeming grace and divine blood which have ransomed my poor babe from all the sin and death he inherited through me. This is true. As we've seen in this story, this is ours. This is what Christ has purchased for us Christians. It is this life forever with Him. And and it is not ours because we deserve it. It is ours because Christ has secured it for us. In fact, it's hard, isn't it, to consider a story of the death of an only son without thinking of the death of another only son. For Jesus Christ was not only moved by our sorrow and suffering, He Himself experienced it. The prophet predicted long ago... He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was rejected and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. He was He was smitten by God as He took all of my sin upon Him and all of your sin upon Him and out of great compassion walked to Calvary's cross and died there for you and I. But He did not end there. It was compassion that led Him to the cross and it was power that brought Him from the grave. And now He lives for to intercede for us and to rule on our behalf for His great glory. Because of that work, you and I can have hope. So what a great opportunity for us, isn't it, to remember that work of Christ. Would you like to celebrate the work of Jesus this morning, church? Let us do so through this memorial meal as we consider what Christ has done. As we hold emblems of His blood and His flesh in our hands, reminded of the great hope that we have, the great work in which Jesus will do for us. We do, as is our custom, for the Bible instructs, want to give you an opportunity to prepare your own hearts to respond to this meal and to remember the grace of our Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so I invite you to take a moment of silent prayer, asking God to examine your heart that you may turn from sin, that you may repent of that, seeking His grace and forgiveness. This is, of course, not a meal for perfect people, so do not withhold yourself from this meal if you feel, I'm just not perfect, I'm not worthy of it. You'll never be worthy of it. That's not the point. You come to this meal as sinners, but as sinners fighting against the sin in our life as we rejoice in the grace that covers us all. This also is a meal only for believers. If you are a guest here and not a Christian, we would ask you politely if you would just pass the plates as they come by, as the Bible instructs us. Let us pray together.
Our Father, we're, we, think, we are thankful that you are rich in mercy. And because of your great love with which you have loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, you sent your Son. Sent him to die so that we may live. We remember that work today as forgiven sinners. Help us to rejoice as we hold these emblems in our hand, waiting for our brothers and sisters that we may partake together. Will you help us to rejoice in the great hope that we have through Christ? Hope for eternity. Hope for life so abundant that we cannot even imagine. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.